the doctrine of justification teaches us that justification is the result of faith and is a legal declaration. It declares, God does, a sinner righteous. The word justification is a term of the courtrooms. It's a forensic term relating to the law courts. Here's the idea. God is a judge. He declares the sinner righteous who puts his or her faith in Christ. He changes their legal status because before his tribunal, they are guilty as charged. He changes that status, not just so they're innocent, but so that they are righteous. He declares them righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we could become the righteousness of God. The great exchange. We give him our sin. God gives to us his righteousness. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Take your Bibles and be turning with me again to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 4, we want to close out our study this morning on the fourth chapter of Romans, a marvelous uh, section of Scripture where Paul has been emphasizing the importance of faith. The title of the message this morning, God was able and still is. Romans chapter 4, please stand to your feet in honor of the reading of God's Word, and I'll pick up in verse Number 18, in hope he, that is Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. And no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised, and that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Over the last several weeks now, we've been speaking about the topic of faith, And even more specifically than that, the faith of Abraham, who is referred to in Romans as the father of the faith. And uh, I think that we have learned uh, an axiom from Romans chapter 4, and it's this. What is unbelievable is actually believable. What is unbelievable is actually believable. But there's another side to that, and that is what is believable only because of God's promise and power It's often not enough for many and therefore becomes to them unbelievable. But such was not the case for Abraham. What seemed to him to be unbelievable became believable through his faith and because of the power of God. The reason was not because of the strength of his faith or the might of his faith. The reason was because of the source of his faith, the power of God and the promise of God So what appeared to be unbelievable actually became believable, not because of his faith, 
but because his faith was in the God of the promise, the God of the covenant. Perhaps you've heard the story of the man who slipped and fell off a cliff while he was hiking on a mountaintop, and uh, he had the providential opportunity, because nothing happens by chance, to grab a branch on his way down. Holding on for dear life, he looked down to see the rock valley below him, some 1,500 feet, and then he looked up above, some 20 feet from where he had fallen from the top of the cliff, and he panicked, as anyone would do in a situation like that, and he desperately cried out, help, is anyone there to help? Well, a booming voice spoke up and said, I am here, if you trust me, I will save you, and the fallen man desperately said, I believe, I believe. And so the man at the top said, if you believe me, let go of the branch and I will save you. But looking down at the rock valley below, the man looked up who was falling and he yelled, is there anybody else up there who can save me? The man whose life was hanging in the balance did not believe in the power of the one asking him to do the impossible and to believe, to trust, and that if he did that, his life would be saved. Charles Wesley wrote many years ago, faith, mighty faith, the promise sees and looks to that alone, laughs at life's possibilities and cries it shall be done. That could be true of Abraham, right? Abraham kept his eye on the promise and he looked at that promise alone in faith and he cried it shall be done. What shall be done? What seemed to be unbelievable but actually became believable through his faith in the promise of a powerful God. Paul has given us a great benefit in Romans chapter 4. As I mentioned last week, he sounds like a broken record. We admit that. And he continues, he just can't help himself as he closes his thoughts on this subject of faith, and really he's not entirely done yet, but he closes his thoughts in chapter 4. He shows to us once again the characteristics of true saving faith. And Really, uh, the topic is not so much about our faith, it's not so much about the characteristics of saving faith, although we need to recognize those, this is really a passage about the character of God, the characteristics of His promises, the characteristics of His power and His sovereignty. To say this, that God was able, and God still is able, to save the worst of sinners. So in... Verses 18 through 25, we see yet again some more characteristics of saving faith, and there are five of them. First of all, Paul tells us that saving faith is marked with a hopeful optimism. Abraham was hopefully optimistic. He was trusting in something he could not see and something that had yet to be fulfilled. Secondly, his faith was marked with a practical realism. He was practically realistic about his circumstances, but he looked beyond that to the promises of God. Third, his faith was stubbornly dogmatic. The text says that he was fully convinced. Nothing could persuade him against the promises of God. Nothing. Fourth, his faith was legally forensic. He was declared righteous. It was counted to him as righteousness. He didn't have righteousness, but he did have faith. And through that faith... God declared him righteous. That is true of us as well. And fifth, his faith was personally salvific. It was a promise 
Not just to uh, a nation of people that would come, but to Abraham himself. And Paul um, labors to show us that our faith is personally salvific. It is specific. It has to do with specifically our own salvation and freedom from the wrath of God. So I want to look at these five characteristics of saving faith. And my prayer is this morning that these characteristics will be true in your heart and in your life. First of all, we see that faith is hopefully optimistic. And we see this in verse number 18. Verse 18 begins by defining Abraham's faith according to his hope. Notice the beginning. It says, in hope, Abraham believed against hope. In hope, he believed. In hope, he believed does not mean that he had faith in his own hope, any more than that he had faith in his own faith. But what he did have was an optimistic outlook and what he could not see. It's important to understand that in hope and against hope in relation to faith is an issue of vision. It's an issue of what we see. It is the difference between an optimistic outlook in hope and a pessimistic outlook against hope. To live against hope has the result of looking at things in terms of human power, human resources, and human responsibility. Whereas living in hope is the result of looking at things in terms of divine power, divine resources, divine surety. Abraham, in hope, believed, verse 18 says, because if he had had a vision on his own circumstances, for example, on his own situation, that which is defined in verse 19, his hope would have been destroyed. Notice in verse 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered the reality that his own body was as good as dead because he was about 100 years old and when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Now we're going to look in more detail on point number two at verse 19, but for now what I want you to see is that Abraham's vision wasn't on the impossible circumstances of verse 19, but the unchangeable providences of verse 17. Because notice back in verse 17, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. That was where Abraham's faith was. Not in the impossible circumstances of verse 19, but in the unchangeable providences of verse 17, he believed in a God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. He lived with hope and in hope, not against hope. It's as if Abraham never moved from standing in the presence of God, as verse 17 says, the day that God made that promise. Oh, it is true that Abraham obeyed and he moved. He shuffled his feet to a foreign land he had never seen or been to based on the promise of a God he had not seen before or heard from. He physically moved, but spiritually speaking, Abraham's faith never moved from the sturdy foundation of God's promises. God and his promises and his power were in Abraham's line of vision no matter how great the circumstances shifted. And the ground beneath Abraham would shift like sand. But spiritually, Abraham trusted in the God who could not be moved. His faith and hope interacted in such a way, verse 18 is telling us, that he trusted God and therefore considered God's promise as good as fulfilled because he gives life to the dead and he calls into existence things that do not exist. He was hopefully optimistic. 
But what were his faith and hope actually in? Well, verse 18 tells us, notice your Bibles, that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. So shall your offspring be is a quotation from Genesis 15.5. So here's the idea. Abraham believed against hope. That is the obvious fact that the birth of the child of promise seemed impossible. It's precisely because Abraham believed against hope that he believed in hope. Namely, that through Isaac, he should become, as verse 18 says, the father of many nations. In other words, he took God at his word, as had been told him, verse 18, so shall your offspring be. Paul is telling us that Abraham was hopefully optimistic. He believed against all hope because there was nothing from a human perspective There was nothing according to human hope that would ever justify believing anything other than what his physical eyes saw. That was two very old people advanced in age that could no longer have kids. But it's important to see that the same options Abraham had are the same ones we have. We can either live with hope and therefore live with God, or we can live without hope and therefore be without God. In fact, Paul says this in Ephesians 2.12, that Before we knew Christ, we were separated from him, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, and having no hope and without God in the world. You see, for Paul and for Abraham, those two things went together. Abraham was not without hope, and therefore he was not without God. And the same is obviously true with us today. Now, the promise specifically to Abraham, verse 18, that he would be the father of many nations simply means that he would be the father of more than one son. And that is why Paul quotes Genesis 15, 5, at the end of verse 18, so shall your offspring be. Now that is an incomplete quotation because the beginning part of that quotation in Genesis says that God took Abraham outside and he told Abraham to look to heaven and to number the stars if he was able to number them. And then God said to him, so shall your offspring be. I love Calvin's comments here. He says that Paul left the entire quotation of Genesis 15:5 incomplete for one reason, and that was to ensure that we would take our Bibles and turn back to the Old Testament and become familiar with it. Because a lot of people are unfamiliar with it. And when we are forced to go back to Genesis 15, we see that the rest of the quotation, the beginning part, was this reality that Abraham's sons would be as many as the stars in the sky. And Abraham therefore was trusting not just in one son, he was trusting in many sons that would culminate, we understand, in one son, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, the promise of Genesis 3.15. You say, how do you know that? Well, because of verse 24. It will be counted to us, that is righteousness, who believe in him who raised from the dead, who? Jesus, our Lord. So as Charles Hodge says, and I quote, Abraham believed that a savior would be born from his family when his having a son was an apparent impossibility, end quote. Abraham was looking in faith to Christ, and the same hope of ancient Abraham is still the only hope for modern man. Don't forget, Abraham was promised to be heir of the world. Did you forget that? Back in chapter 4, again in verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring was that he would be heir of the world. And after speaking about the faith of Abraham and those who have the faith of Abraham, turn with me to uh, Hebrews 11. We've we've turned here a number of different times, but this is an important cross-reference for our purposes. 
Hebrews 11 verse 13, after speaking about Abraham's faith, that God would give him descendants as many as the stars of heaven, verse 12, and as innumerable as the grains of sand on the seashore, verse 13, these all died in faith, who? Abraham and his descendants, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And then again, verse 17, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named, because he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. This is hopeful optimism. And being hopefully optimistic is not, again, having faith in your faith. It's not having hope in your hope. That's just positive thinking. That's just psychology. That's just something to get you pumped up. It's not faith in your faith. It's not hope in your hope. It is trust and hope in a person, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, the promised one. And Abraham believed that he would be heir of the world, and we believe that through Christ we will be heirs of the world through faith. We have that hopeful optimism. And Abraham believed that eternal life was not something that he simply received When he died, he believed it was something he received when he believed. He had faith, even though he never saw all the promises fulfilled, even though he never saw himself as an heir of the world, literally in this world, he desired a better country, Hebrews says, a heavenly one. He understood that that everlasting covenant God made with him had behind it everlasting life. He understood that his faith in God was faith that God would save him. It was faith that God would give him the world, that he would be heir of the world and everlastingly so. His eyes looked beyond this world to another world, a better country, a heavenly country. And I want to just tell you this morning that if you have true saving faith, you will be hopefully optimistic. Now that doesn't mean that your faith is going to be perfect because notice verse 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Abraham was human, and so are we. He didn't have a Pollyannish view of life. He was fully aware of the risk of faith. He was hopefully optimistic, but he was also practically realistic. And that's the second mark of true saving faith. Not only that we will be hopefully optimistic, but verse 19, that we will be practically realistic. And Abraham was. He looked at his circumstances and knew what he was up against. So when it says at the beginning of verse 19, he did not weaken in faith, that cannot mean that he had perfect faith in God's promises or that he never had a weak moment of faith. Because if you take your Bibles and turn back with me to Genesis 17, we see one of the instances in which Abraham, in fact, did have a weak moment of faith. Genesis 17 and verse 15, God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall 
not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I'll bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Verse 17, then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Now remember, this comes after another weak moment of faith. When in Genesis 16, Abraham and Sarah put together a plan that Abraham will go into um, the bedchamber of Hagar, the servant, and he would have a son through her because Sarah's womb was barren. And Genesis 16, which comes before Genesis 17, where Abraham laughed at the idea of having kids. Genesis 16 comes after Genesis 15 when God had made the promise. And Abraham actually believed in that moment. That is why after Abraham laughed in verse 17, notice verse 18, and Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God, I I figured this thing out. I know you made a promise and I figured you out. You really wanted me to go um, have a child through Hagar. But what does God say in verse 19? God said, no, but Sarah, your wife will bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Everlasting covenant? Abraham had to be reassured of the promises of God, and I'm sure Abraham had other weak moments of faith. We could even look at the fact that Abraham at one point lied about Sarah, saying that it was a sister. Yet what we do know is that he didn't weaken in faith in the sense that When it came to the supreme test of his faith, when God commanded him to offer up Isaac, as Hebrews 11 says, we just read it, of whom it was said, though through Isaac shall your offspring be named, what did he consider? He considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead. So Abraham considered a couple of things. First of all, he considered, verse 17, that God gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. He considered, as Hebrews eleven eighteen 18 says, that God would be able to raise Isaac from the dead if he had actually plunged that knife into Isaac's heart. He gave life to the dead, Abraham said, so he can give life to Sarah's dead womb. He can call into existence that which does not exist, though from a human, biological, physiological, natural standpoint, it makes no sense that an old man and old woman can have kids. He considered that. God could overcome that, even while he was practically realistic of the helplessness and hopelessness of the circumstance, because he also considered, verse 19, his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. You see, true faith does not ignore reality. It doesn't close one's eyes to the circumstances. It doesn't bury one's head in the sand. It's not a Pollyannish view. But it also doesn't overlook the power of God who can give life where there is no life. So Abraham was practically realistic. He took into account, he reckoned with or considered, as verse 19 says, the barrenness of Sarah's womb. But he believed where there is a will, not his will, but God's will, there would also be a way. And he didn't allow this practical realism to ultimately hang over him and overcome him. It's in that sense verse 19 is saying that he didn't weaken in faith because over the long haul, he fixed his attention upon God, not his circumstances. He focused on the promises of God even though it was obvious that it was impossible for him to have a child. 
He was realistic. He knew that on his own, he and Sarah could not get pregnant. But you remember as Jesus told the rich young ruler who asked Jesus, who could be saved if it was easier for a camel to pass through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? What did Jesus tell him? Jesus said, what is impossible with man is what? Possible with God. There is a realism to Abraham's faith. In fact, the book of Genesis tells us that this wasn't something that merely Abraham considered. Oh, my wife is old and I am old. No. When Abraham considered that his own body was as good as dead because he was a hundred and Sarah's womb was barren, Genesis 18.11 says God too considered that. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, Genesis 18.11, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. What is that? Genesis 18.11 is God admitting that this wasn't a unique circumstance, biologically speaking. There was no way Abraham and Sarah were going to have kids. Is it possible that someone in their 70s could have children? Of course it's possible. That happens. But Genesis 18.11 says it wasn't possible with Abraham. This was an impossible set of circumstances that God set up on purpose. Why? Because that allows faith to be faith. Remember, faith is defined as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Hebrews 11.1. There is no human way, there was no human possibility, there was no way to see that Abraham and Sarah could have kids. So, we should consider the hopeless nature of our circumstances as Abraham did. I hope you feel helpless this morning. And I say that with all pastoral sensitivity. I want you to be helpless and hopeless and even anxiety-ridden about the fact you can do nothing to earn salvation. This is solely based on a miracle of God. Regeneration is a miracle of God. The new birth is a miracle of God. Why did God have the Savior be born through the womb of a woman? Well, because Sarah's womb was barren. Same reason. God wanted to use that figure, that illustration to convey to us that if a birth is going to happen, natural or spiritual, God must do it. But such a consideration of being practically realistic should not remove our firm conviction. Otherwise, faith won't be present. Your consideration of your helpless, hopeless circumstances should never overturn your conviction. That was true of Abraham. He had true faith. One of the saddest and most sorrow-filled trials that I witness as a pastor comes when couples who want to have children, that's what they want more than anything in life. They're unable to do it. And sometimes it's for unexplainable reasons. At other times, it's explainable. Now, I have no clue what that's like other than to witness the sorrow, sometimes the anger, sometimes the marital conflict it brings. And I have to be very careful because all I have to do and all Corey has to do is we just smile at each other and somehow she ends up pregnant. I've learned not to feel guilty about this because I have nothing to do with it. God blessed us this way. That's what he chose to do. But I've also learned not to be prideful because really I have nothing to do with it. And I need to be sensitive to those who can have children because it is a tremendous burden and trial. And I want you to know this morning, it was even more so for those in Abraham's day. I imagine Abraham, you know, the Bible tells us he was the owner of many wells and flocks of animals and caravans uh, would pass through uh, his land, rich merchants from all around the world or as the known world, they would stop at Abraham's wells and he would give them water. 
His servants would go fetch them food and they would sell the food. His servants would take uh, the flocks and the herds of the passing caravans and make sure they were cared for. And maybe at times when Abraham wasn't that busy, he was a rich man and he had a lot of, a lot of farming to do, but maybe he would invite some of these rich people, these people of clout into the shade of his tent. Hi, welcome. My name is Abraham. What is your name? Abraham. That means the father of many. How many children and grandchildren do you have? Well, none. Yet. Oh, okay. Well, we probably need to be going now. What a trial. How embarrassing for these caravans to be passing through. And Abraham, which means the father of many, had none. He was realistic about his circumstances, but faith was victorious over the doubts that might creep in because, listen to this, Abraham focused on the God and promises he could not see instead of the circumstances, though troubling as they were, that he could see. Faith always looks at the problems of life in light of the promises of God and is the same with us. We must constantly look to God, not our circumstances. We don't bury our heads in the sand. We don't look the other way when things seem to be impossible. But we don't focus on those circumstances, right? We are like Abraham. We are longing for a better country, a heavenly one. And if we focus on our circumstances and our situation, even though we admit it's impossible, if we focus on it, we will be full of bitterness and hopelessness and perhaps, watch it, even faithlessness. True faith overcomes doubts. It's practically realistic. It's not Pollyannish, but it's real. When those moments of doubt creep in, we look where? Not to the problems, but to the promises of God. And so to whatever degree Abraham had doubts and bad days, notice verse 20, Paul says, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. Why? Because I just said, faith always looks at the problems in light of the promises. So the cold and dark days of doubt were always overcome with the warmth and light of God's truth. Faith, like Abraham's, is stubbornly dogmatic. And that's the third point. Faith is not only hopefully optimistic and practically realistic, but it is also stubbornly dogmatic. And the question becomes, how is our faith strengthened so it becomes stubbornly dogmatic? What exactly happens? Well, notice the rest of verse 20. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. There's the key. And then he was even stronger. Verse 21, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So here's the idea. Abraham glorified God by letting God be God. He took God at his word and thus he glorified God. But how did he grow strong in his faith? Well, if you live your life glorifying God, your life will be marked by obedience. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says that everything that we do, whether we eat or drink, should be done to what? Glorify God. Abraham lived his life that way, giving glory to God. He was obedient. How was his faith strengthened in giving glory to God? Well, the text doesn't say But I'm going to stand on the shoulders of several Reformed commentators who believe that Abraham proved his faith and glorified God and was strengthened in his faith because he kept the covenant of God 
by circumcising the male members of his household. You say, how did that strengthen his faith? Well, in this way, Abraham not only continued to glorify God by obeying that command to circumcise his household, but through that obedience of circumcision, he had his faith strengthened because every time he witnessed one of his little boys or grandchildren be circumcised, it was a reminder to him and to his people that God would keep his promise, that he would make Abraham's seed a vast nation. As verse 17 says, that he would be the father of many nations. In Genesis 17, we see the command of circumcision. Verse 9, And God said to Abram, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he and who was born in your house and he who was bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. In other words, my everlasting covenant will be reminded to you through circumcision. Verse 14, any uncircumcised male circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Wow. So in other words, instead of staggering or waving, wavering in his faith, by entertaining the unbelievable nature of the promise or his circumstances, Abraham obeyed God. He circumcised those boys because circumcision was a sign and a seal of God's covenant promises. And I want you to just understand today that the primary means of grace are still the preaching of God's word and his gospel promises and the sacraments. Baptism in the Lord's Supper, or if you're Baptistic, the ordinances of the church. You know, Augustine called the sacraments the visible signs of invisible grace. They are reminders to us, and they strengthen our faith. That's why the Westminster Standards tell us that the sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace, immediately instituted by God to represent Christ and His benefits, and to confirm or strengthen our interest in Him. Circumcision was the sacrament, therefore, that God chose in the Old Testament. We saw this uh, in verse 11. Abraham received the sign of circumcision as what? A seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Romans 4.11. So circumcision was the sign of God's covenant with Abraham. Therefore, he commanded Abraham to circumcise his sons. Why? appropriately applied to the male reproductive organ, reminding Abraham of God's promise to give him many children and to create for him a great nation. Now, this shouldn't be hard to understand that that sacrament of circumcision strengthened his faith. Oftentimes, when I'm given the opportunity to speak to teenagers or even children, sometimes I will use object lessons. Sometimes I will use a prop of some sort to demonstrate a truth. God does the same thing. He comes down to the level of his children to help us grasp deep truths concerning his promises through the pictures and illustrations of baptism and the Lord's Supper because these are signs and seals authenticating to us in simple ways with invisible words, as Augustine calls them, or pictures of God's promises to us. You know, in Noah's day, the rainbow was a sign of God's promise to never flood the world again. And if you turn back with me again to Hebrews chapter 11, we'll just keep bouncing back and forth. It seems like that's what we're doing this morning. 
The faith of Noah is mentioned, Hebrews eleven seven by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So you mean to tell me that Noah, too, was saved by grace alone through faith alone? Absolutely. That's what the Bible says. And it also says he became an heir of righteousness. I thought Abraham was going to be an heir of the world. Well, Abraham was an heir of the world, and so was Noah, and so are you and I. When we have faith, Noah didn't waver in his faith. By faith, he was warned. By faith, he constructed an ark. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2 that Noah was also a preacher of righteousness for 120 years while he built that ark. And if he was like me, any sermon he ever preached to others, he first preached to himself. Why do you think he preached so much? Because it reminded him and everyone else of the promises of God. And I imagine that when caravans passed through to meet with Abraham, for him to give them water on their long journey, that when they scoffed at his name Abraham, the father of many, Abraham would say, yeah, but you don't know my God. Let me tell you about my God. Well, Noah preached. Abraham preached. Noah had the sign of the rainbow. Abraham had the sign of circumcision. We have the signs of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and we are strengthened through the preaching of the Word of God. We are strengthened when we're reminded of the promises of God. We are fully convinced when we're reminded of God's power in His Word, and God reduces Himself to a father teaching His children by giving us simple signs and emblems known as baptism and the Lord's Supper, sacraments, to seal these truths on our hearts. So the history of covenant signs like circumcision and baptism are important because they strengthen and confirm God's promises and strengthen and confirm our faith and make us stubbornly dogmatic. Now, it's amazing to me how people complicate this. Please listen to me closely. Preaching of the Word of God and the sacraments in our day are often overlooked for other things in their place for Christians to find, quote-unquote, community. This straight. Just so I understand. God's preached word together with the sacraments, signs and seals, serve to confirm and strengthen our faith within God's covenant community, but people want to experience community in a different way. Well, yeah, pastor, you don't understand. I, I experience community like nothing else in my small group. Well, that's good for you, but I experience community in my homeschool co-op. That's really where community is found. Well, okay, whatever. But I experience community. It's just me and God and my Bible at home. And then others say, no, if you really want to experience community, you'll schedule a whole bunch of beer and psalm singing gatherings because there is really where the power of God resides. Let me be clear. Community, in that name, Christ Reformed Community Church, means that we have God speak and confirm his promises to the covenant community through word and sacrament. And I can just give you a brief history lesson here. The same John Calvin, who tended to believe that Lord's Supper should be practiced weekly, was the same John Calvin who said the Bible doesn't command us to do that, and he willingly pastored two churches, one who only practiced communion four times a year, and another church who only agreed to practice it once a month. And Calvin said this isn't worth fighting over, the sacraments are important, and I kind of think we should do them weekly, but I'm not going to raise Cain about it. By the way, 
The same Calvin that endorsed exclusive psalm singing was the same Calvin that would try to help write psalms for singing, and he organized um, the organization of psalms put to music, with no musical instruments, by the way. He believed in exclusive psalm singing with no instruments. But you will never read in history where Calvin said that the third sacrament of the church was beer and psalm singing. I don't find that anywhere. The psalm singing he was talking about took place in the context of corporate worship as the people of God did the primary thing they were called to do, which was sit under the word of God and observe the sacraments as much as they could. So you can't use Calvin to argue for beer and psalm singing. And by the way, if you like beer, fine. If you like psalm singing, great. If you like those things together, then go and do it. But what you can't do is be legalistic about it and say, well, The third mark of a biblical church is beer and psalm singing. I don't think so. Calvin never said that. He said the marks of a true church are the word of God faithfully preached, the right administration of the sacraments, and church discipline. It's word and sacrament. And by the way, while I'm on this topic, talk about Luther as well. Luther, unlike Calvin, really loved music. In fact, he loved it so much he was not an exclusive psalm singing Christian. He wrote his own hymns, such as A Mighty Fortress is Our God, sometimes basing these hymns on psalms, as A Mighty Fortress is Our God was on a psalm. But at other times, just, he was just poetic in what he wrote. That Luther, who was not an exclusive psalm-singing Christian, also made this remark. Luther said, the church of God has no right to gather unless they gather to sit under the preaching of the word of God. So it seems to me that some Reformed people, although I think they mean well, They always think that they're right, and they think that everybody else is wrong. Well, I understand that. I feel that way oftentimes, too. But I have to curb that. Because if I make every issue an issue, then what we become is this exclusive group of people that think we are right on everything and everyone else is wrong. Read John Calvin. He was very ecumenical. He wanted a denomination of all the Reformed churches. But they couldn't agree on Certain things, and Calvin oftentimes would say, well, those aren't the most important things to agree on. Can't we agree on the most important things? So revisionist history is a dangerous thing. And what is even more important is understanding what the Bible emphasizes. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Whatever you do, word and sacrament must be a priority. And it was the word of God, his promises, and the sacrament of circumcision, that made Abraham, as Romans 4 says, fully convinced, verse 21, that God was able to do what he promised. That's how, verse 20, he grew strong in his faith. That is why he didn't waver. That is why he was stubbornly dogmatic. And you say, well, that's too simple to believe. Just the word and just the sacrament? Yes, that's the point. We have a God who has said, these things, when you take part in them with faith, your faith will be strengthened. So do you have the faith to believe that, or do you want to create something else? That's the point. It's pretty simple when I look at this to say that the primary reason churches should be started are to emphasize word and sacrament. I think that churches would do far better if they just stripped everything away, all of the distractions, all the stuff that the world says to do, and they said, you know what, we're going to be a church that honors the word of God and observes the sacraments. That's a biblical church. That's a biblical church. We need to be so careful, 
so careful not to impose on Scripture and impose on the church things the Bible does not command us to do. They may be good things, but good things can oftentimes be preference. And many times that's exactly what they are. Well, we need to move to the fourth thing or the fourth characteristic of true saving faith. That is that, in case we've forgotten, it is legally forensic. It is not only hopefully optimistic and practically realistic and stubbornly dogmatic, but number four, it is legally forensic. Notice verse 22. That is why his faith, Abraham's faith, was counted to him as righteousness. It's like Paul's saying, just in case uh, somehow you've missed the point in chapter 4, let me get back to the main point. Justifying faith, or the type of faith that justifies is the type of faith that counts to us the righteousness of God. He's quoting again Genesis 15, 6. He's quoted it several times. What he means here in verse 22 is that through Abraham's faith, because he leaned on God's promises, he trusted in those promises, unbelievable though his circumstances may have been, God imputed or counted to him righteousness. God reckoned or considered Abraham righteous. So it wasn't faith in Abraham's faith. It was faith in God's promises, as Paul has clearly shown. As Calvin says, faith can bring us nothing more than what it receives from the word. So the doctrine of justification teaches us that justification is the result of faith and is a legal declaration. It declares, God does, a sinner righteous. The word justification is a term of the courtrooms. It's a forensic term relating to the law courts. Here's the idea. God is a judge. He declares the sinner righteous who puts his or her faith in Christ. He changes their legal status because before his tribunal, they are guilty as charged. He changes that status, not just so they're innocent, but so that they are righteous. He declares them righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we could become the righteousness of God. The great exchange, we give him our sin, God gives to us his righteousness. And here's the reality, folks, you can't even take credit for your faith. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Um, Yeah, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, not the free will of man, not the faith of man, to the praise of his glorious grace, not to the praise of man, with which he blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, not according to the power of our faith. But the riches of his grace, verse 8, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. For the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Of course it's not your own doing. Ephesians 1, it's based on the election and predestination of God, his glorious sovereign purposes. Verse 9, it's not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand. We are a new creation in Christ. It is the miracle of regeneration, miracle of the new birth, so that even faith itself is a gift. For by grace we are saved through faith, not as a result of works. It, faith, is a gift of God. That's critically important to understand. And so Paul returns to it in verse 22. Legally being declared righteous means that God has changed the way he looks at you. It doesn't mean that you no longer commit sin. 
It doesn't mean that you don't have weak moments where you lack the type of faith that you need to have. But whatever faith you demonstrate to receive the righteousness of God, that righteousness can't escape you. It covers you. It clothes you. You've been declared righteous. And it's amazing to me that Paul says that is exactly what happened to Abraham. You say Abraham was clothed with the righteousness of Christ before Christ was born into this world. That's what the Bible teaches. And you could say that retroactively that happened after Christ came and died and resurrected. That's fine. But he was saved by the same gospel. He wasn't saved by good works. He was legally declared righteous by God. That's true of all saving faith. You see, all saving faith is hopefully optimistic. It looks beyond the here and now. It is practically realistic. It doesn't bury its head in the sand. It recognizes the impossibility of the situation, but continues to look to God. It is stubbornly dogmatic. How? By giving glory to God. How do you give glory to God? By obeying Him. How do you obey Him? By observing the Word and the sacraments. That's the chief way to obey God. And faith is also legally forensic. But it's not only hopefully optimistic and practically realistic and stubbornly dogmatic and legally forensic. Number five, it's also personally salvific. And this is ground-shaking because up to this point, Paul has really been speaking directly so about Abraham and his faith and what it meant for him. By implication, it it applies to us, but Paul has been speaking directly how it applies to him. But now in verses 23 through 25, Paul speaks about how it applies to us. True saving faith is personally salvific. And verse 23 makes it clear that justification was not merely for Abraham, but for us. Notice your Bibles, verse 23. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. Notice verse 24, but for ours also. This simply means that not only was Abraham justified by faith, but all who believe as he believed, they're also justified. This is ground shaking. This is earth shattering because it tells us that God has always saved his people the same way. You might not be a patriarch and you might not live in the land of Canaan and you may not have had the exact circumstances of Abraham, but Abraham was saved the same way that you and I are saved. Through justification. That's why this doctrine is so pivotal. And as earth shattering as that reality is, regardless of the times, past, present, or future, God always saves the same way by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That reality is not as earth shattering as what Paul says in the rest of verse 24 and verse 25. He says, This righteousness, notice it, will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now that's mouthful, but let me make it chewable. That first phrase in verse 25, speaking about Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses, means that our trespasses, our sins, made it necessary for God to hand over Jesus to the judgment of the cross. In fact, uh, Romans 8.32 says that He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And that becomes crystal clear in the gospel accounts. It was the father that handed Jesus. Of course, Judas was part of that. Um, Of course, the Roman officers were part of that. The religious establishment was part of that. But in the final analysis, it was God the father that handed him over. He was delivered up for our trespasses. Because if God had not done that, there would be no salvation. And that second little part of verse 25 was raised for our justification. This means that he was raised 
to convince us what Paul has been speaking about all along, and that is in, in God's sight, he views believers like Abraham as righteous, that is, without sin. William Hendrickson, the Reformed commentator, says, and I quote, In other words, Christ's resurrection had as its purpose to bring to light the fact that all those who acknowledge Jesus as their Lord and Savior have entered into the state of righteousness or justification in the eyes of God. He continues, the Father, by raising Jesus from the dead, assures us that the atoning sacrifice has been accepted, hence our sins are forgiven. So the capstone event in all of history is the resurrection. And this is earth-shattering because while it is true insofar as it goes that the circumstances of our faith cannot be identical with Abraham. He lived in a different time period than us. We live in a different day. The object of faith is the same, Christ. And the means to receive Christ is the same, faith. Notice again verse 24. This was written for his sake and for ours also that it, righteousness, will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. He's the object of faith. What does this teach us? It teaches us that Abraham and we believe in the promise of the coming seed of Genesis 3.15, the son of Eve, and that this seed would crush the head of the serpent. The seed is identified as Jesus our Lord. Abraham believed that a seed would come from Eve. He believed that a seed would come from his loins. In fact, Genesis twenty two eighteen: in your offspring or in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. You see, Abraham believed that a king would rise and rule from his own loins. He believed that. He believed going all the way back to the garden that Adam was the vice regent. Adam was the earthly king representing God and he messed it all up because he fell into sin and so God had to promise that through Eve would come a son and so when God made this promise to Abraham and to his seed, all of that imagery of the garden and the promise to Eve would have been on his mind. He would have known, oh, I get it. We've been kicked out of the garden. Adam messed up. But there's coming another king. There's, there's coming another head of the human race. There's coming another child, a, a baby that will be born in the world, and he will come from my family, and he will rule. There will be a day in which I will no longer be a sojourner and an exile. And he longed for that seed to come. Abraham had faith looking forward to Christ. That's the point. We have faith looking backward to Christ. And Abraham, and we also believe that God could raise this seed from the dead. You know, when God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, his only son, the one through whom God said the seed would come, the Messiah, the king of all kings, Abraham, Hebrews 11 says, considered the fact that God would be able to raise him from the dead if he followed through with that. And then the author of Hebrews tells us that Isaac was a type of resurrection. You say, wait a second, Isaac wasn't raised from the dead because he was never killed. Right, he was a type, a figure. And Isaac, the one who could have been resurrected, if God had to do that, demonstrated a type of resurrection that pointed forward to Isaac's son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would eventually come. This is amazing. Because justifying faith 
always means faith in Jesus. That is Paul's point. There is salvation and no other name. No other name under heaven has been given to man whereby we be saved. Flip back to chapter 3, verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in who? Jesus Christ. For who? All who believe. That includes Abraham. But there's no distinction. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Verse 24, we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. No other way. Romans 5 verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him through the wrath of God. We are justified by his blood, but we're also justified by his resurrection. We saw that in our passage this morning, the end of verse 25, he was raised for our justification. You see, his blood, his death can't be separated from his resurrection or that blood has no power to save. And if Jesus was not raised, he would not have ascended. And if he hadn't have ascended, then he couldn't plead for you even now as a mediator. That's why, and we'll see it next time, Romans 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. It's ongoing through Jesus Christ our Lord. Why? Verse 2, through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we currently stand. No death, no salvation, no justification. No death, no resurrection, no salvation, no justification. Abraham believed in the God who raises the dead, verse 17, calls into existence things that don't exist. We believe in a God who raised, verse 24, Jesus our Lord from the dead. Abraham believed we would inherit the world. Chapter 4, verse 13, the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. Verse 17, I made you the father of many nations. Verse 18, and hope, he believed against hope that he would become the father of many nations. The fact that the nations would be justified through the coming seed of Abraham was what his hope was. His hope was in this coming king that would rule the world and rule the people of God who would be justified before the sight of of God. This was not a little promise he believed. It was a big one, and it's the same promise we believe. It's the promise of Isaiah 2 that the earth will stream to the Lord. It's the promise of Psalm 113 that from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord will be praised. It's the promise of Habakkuk 2.14 that the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. It's the promise of Isaiah 2 that swords will be beaten into plowshares. It is the promise of all of Scripture that the world will be Christianized under the enthroned Lord Jesus Christ. It is the promise tucked away in the book. When Daniel says, I saw in the night visions and behold... With the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Abraham had faith in all of this. He didn't look at the signs of the times. Are you kidding me? He didn't look at his own circumstances of barrenness and deadness. Although he saw it, he took a glance at it. He didn't read the daily times of Canaan and focus on that. Because, beloved, if he would have done that, he would have ended up being faithless. God preserved his faith because God redirected his eyes away from the situation, impossible though it was, to something that was believable because of the power of God. Do you live that way? You mean you want me to live that way when I read about corporate kleptocracy? When I read about abortion? When I read about poverty and government overreach? When I read about wars and rumors of wars? When I see the decay of our culture? Yes. Was what Abraham believed any more unbelievable than what God asked you to believe? That there's coming a king that will take care of all of this? In fact, I'll tell you this. What Abraham did was hard. Abraham believed the unbelievable. By comparison, what we do is easy. Abraham looked forward to the promised one whose name he didn't even really know. Other than some things Scripture says in the prophets in the Old Testament. He didn't know that he would be Jesus of Nazareth. But he believed the unbelievable. What is our excuse? God has raised Jesus from the dead. Witnesses have seen the resurrected Lord. The blood of the martyrs have testified to that. The gospel has gone around the globe. And individuals from all nations are being converted. Jesus reigns even now. You tell me what is more unbelievable. What Abraham didn't see or what you see. Abraham believed the unbelievable. But for us, it's more unbelievable not to believe what God has clearly made believable. That Jesus died, was resurrected, and ascended to the right hand of God. Faith, saving faith is hopefully optimistic. It is practically realistic. It is stubbornly dogmatic. It is legally forensic. And it is personally salvific. God has promised a global salvation, but He has also promised a personal salvation. And you can't be part of the global people of God apart from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The way is narrow that leads to life. There are few who find that. The way is broad that leads to destruction. And many find that way. One person enters the kingdom of God at a time. It's like a turnstile. And if you don't have faith, you're not getting in. But it's God who gives you that faith. And it's God who gives you that faith by redirecting your gaze, not to your faith, not to your hope, not to the unbelievable unbelievable nature of the circumstances, but to the one who has promised over and over and over again to fulfill every promise, jot and tittle, that has ever been written in the Word of God. So when you fear your faith will fail, Christ will hold you fast. He will preserve your faith. And what we do in demonstrating faith in the gospel is the most believable thing in the world. The hope that all will be set right, that our sins will be forgiven, 
that God, the creator of this universe, at last will rule and reign. And we as the people of God will have peace everlasting because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And we no longer will be viewed as sinners. We will be viewed and are viewed as righteous in the sight of God. This is the doctrine of justification. May we cling to it as we look to Christ. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.